0: through 10, which is the whole chapter of Esther 7. So, go ahead and turn there, Esther 7. This chapter today brings to an end the rivalry between Haman and Mordecai. Previously, uh, Mordecai received the honor that Haman had designed for himself. And now, today, Haman will receive the disgrace that he had designed for Mordecai. It's a major part of the story where victory for the Jewish people begins to take place. And so, go ahead and stand and follow along, Esther. Chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. So, the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Let's pray. God We praise You for Your Word and for the grace that it is to us, the ways that You reveal Yourself to us through Your Word. We praise You and we thank You. We ask You to help us today that we would have ears to hear, hearts to be receptive to who You are and what You have done and what You say to us, Lord. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Just remember here, imagine in one 24-hour period, Haman was feasting with the king and queen and bragging about his wealth and his sons and his power and making plans to get rid of the one source of constant frustration in his life. And then without Warning! He was honoring the one from whom he wanted honor, and his life was taken on the very device he hoped would kill Mordecai. It's all in 24 hours this is all taking place. The massive reversal that takes place here in these few chapters. Verse 1, so the king and Haman went in to feast... With Queen Esther, literally it means to drink or to party. Remember, this book is filled with partying and feasts. This is the king who loves parties and loves feasts. But this is not going to be the feast that Haman wants to be or thought that he wanted to be a part of, not one that he's going to boast about. He does not realize at this point how much he doesn't want to be there. It refers here again to Esther as Queen Esther. And however much Esther may have seemed like a concubine earlier in the story, from chapter 5 and on, she is the queen. And her royal status is emphasized as queen. Verse 2 And on the second day, as they're drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request, even to the half of my kingdom? It shall be fulfilled. So Esther and Ahasuerus and Haman feast together as they are drinking wine following the feast. The king asks Esther again, What is your wish? What is your request? And again, on this second day, that's a reminder. This is 24 hours. So there was a feast the day before that Esther had asked King Ahasuerus and Haman to come to where she would uh, make her request known. And at that feast the day before this, she says, come back tomorrow. I'll have another feast for you, and then I will give you my request. So this is the second day, the second feast. In verse 3, then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Now, echoing the king's use of wish and request here, Esther asks for her life as her wish and her people as her request. Certainly, that was not at all what the king expected to hear. And all of these, like, ask me for anything up to half of my kingdom and I will give it to you at no point... Certainly is the king thinking she's going to ask for her life to be saved. And he can't fully comprehend what she means until she explains later. And no matter what the king thought of the Jews, at least in some ways, he loved Esther. And he wouldn't want harm to come to Esther. And so Esther is walking now this fine line because... She needs to accuse Haman and and do that very clearly, but at the same time, she needs to not implicate Ahasuerus, who we know is a part of this decision. Now, this is a significant part here because for the very first time, Esther fully reveals herself as Jewish and identifies herself with her people's plight. Verse 4, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And she begins by picking up on the very wording of the edict. She repeats the same three words, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate, from Esther 313. It's what's spoken and written into the edict. But notice this phrase doesn't even register with the king. He had to ask Esther later who's behind the threat against her, even as she's quoting the edict. He doesn't realize she's quoting Regardless of whether he understood, she's indicating here that she is aware of the edict. She knows what has been said. She says she would have kept silent if she and her people had merely been sold as male and female slaves. Now, that's not at all dismissing that as as if it wouldn't be significant, but she's carefully aligning herself with the king's own interests. She's saying here that she wouldn't trouble the king if it wasn't of utmost urgency. Verse 5, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? Who has dared to do this? king obviously wants to know who has planned this harm against the queen and her people. Now, Haman is hearing all of this. Like, they have not left the drinking of the wine here. (laughs) They're all sitting there, just the three of them, and all of this is coming out. Sitting right there with them at this feast, they had so longed to be a part of. The blood must be leaving his face here, right? Because mo- most certainly he recognized the words of the edict. And whether or not he knew before this that Esther was Jewish doesn't matter. He had purposed to have them and therefore Esther killed. You honestly, you have to wonder about King Ahasuerus here. I mean, it is odd that he seems clueless, even up to this point of what is happening and what's going on. But he is. Verse six, and Esther said, "A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman, then Haman was terrified before the king and queen." Now Ecclesiastes 3:7 says that there is a time to be silent and a time to speak. And Esther here speaks at the right time she is clear Haman is not only an enemy of the Jews but of the queen and therefore of the king The TNIV version conveys the abrupt nature of this text well it's it's an adversary and enemy this vile Haman Esther is casting Haman as her enemy because he's conspired against the queen's life the king's enemy because she is Ahasuerus' wife and haman has manipulated the king and then the enemy of all people and when haman heard his name he panicked right as all of us would panic he's terrified of both the king and queen but he's going to appeal to the queen verse Seven and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The king is obviously enraged, filled with wrath. And we've seen the king angry for far lesser things in this book, but he's angry here that someone would harm the queen. He's angry that his most trusted advisor has conspired such an evil plan. Of all of the names that Ahasuerus might have expected Esther to mention, certainly he wasn't anticipating to hear Haman, his trusted advisor. And he's so angry that he cannot contain himself, and so he leaves the room Brian Gregory proposes one theory regarding why Ahasuerus was so confused and would have been enraged at Haman's betrayal he contends that because the hebrew word for destroy is a homophone for the word enslave that Haman solicited the king's permission to kill the jews but did so with an ambiguous word such that when he followed the request with a payment of money, the king would naturally but mistakenly think that Haman was requesting merely to enslave a group of people. Now, that may be why Esther mentions that she wouldn't bother the king if it was just that they would be enslaved. So, it's possible that Haman was oblivious to the fact that, or excuse me, that Ahasuerus was oblivious to the fact that Haman had used the word that is actually destroy and kill and annihilate rather than the word for enslave. That's possible. And Haman, seeing that the king was convinced of his guilt, plays his final card and stays to beg for his life. And this move will ultimately be the nail in his coffin. Verse 8. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Imagine, I mean, how things have completely turned on their head for Haman. King re-enters the room, and the sight that greets him is Haman falling upon Esther on the couch where she laid. Now, we understand exactly what's happening here. We know why Haman is there and what he's doing. He's pleading for his life. He is begging Esther to spare his life. She now is his only hope. Seduction was certainly the last thing on Haman's mind, and it's possible that the king did not misjudge that either, but rather the king's misunderstanding could be intentional because it gives the king a pretext to punish Haman because Haman's real wrong, his actual wrong plotting against the Jews had the king's full endorsement. So, how could the king fault Haman for something that he had approved of, something that had been written in the king's name? That expression, assault the queen, is literally conquer the queen. It has all of the political connotations that are associated with an attempt to take someone else's wife or concubine, especially another king's wife or concubine. It signals an attempt to supplant the husband's authority and replace it with the one assaulting. We have examples of this in the Bible, Abner and Saul's concubine in 2 Samuel chapter 3, Absalom and David's concubines in 2 Samuel chapter 16. Adonijah's request for Abishag in 1 Kings 2 and Reuben's taking of his father's concubine in Genesis 35. And remember, uh, Solomon, when he hears about Adonijah's request for David's concubine Abijah, he says that it might just as well be a request for the kingdom in 1 Kings 2. So, the final blow of Haman's life comes by way of a false accusation. Ironically, this isn't much different than the false accusation that the Jewish people had suffered at Haman's hands. And it says there that as the words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now, the meaning of that phrase is unclear. It's uncertain what that actually means. There are suggestions given, one suggestion being a gesture indicating Haman was condemned to death. And that, that may, as we read it uh, here in our uh, modern culture, uh, that may be something that comes to our minds, that as soon as the king says it, they put a hood over Haman's uh, head to take him away to um, kill him. But there's just little evidence to support this in this culture. It could be a sign that the king was angry. It could be an expression, meaning that Haman loses the privilege of those who saw the face of the king. It could mean simply that he's removed from public view. It could be any of those. We're not certain. Whatever the meaning is, it says that it happened as soon as the word left the mouth of the king. Haman is condemned. In verse 9, then Harbona One of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. Amazing. It's a good time to speak up for Harbona there. Harbona was a servant. He's one of the seven eunuchs that was mentioned in chapter 1, verse 10. He steps up and provides information. He tells the king about the gallows and adds that Haman intended them for Mordecai, the man the king had recently honored, the man whose word saved the king. The king orders then for Haman to be impaled on his own stake, intended for someone else. And then verse 10, the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Haman is destroyed. He's lived out what the psalmist says of those who seek evil. Psalm 73, verses 18 through 20, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Now, the story for Haman is over. But the story of Esther is not over. There's more to come as we're going to see next week and the following. We have two more Sundays where we're going to be in the book of Esther. But as we consider this, let's consider what we learn about God from this text today. And there's a lot. There's probably more than I can cover uh, here in our time. But let's consider and look at the goodness of God here in chapter 7 of Esther. I want to begin by asking some questions. Just think about the story here of Esther. Consider all that's been happening, but specifically here in this chapter. Esther risks everything. She identifies with the Jewish people and reveals to the king Haman's plan. That's a risk. The king had signed off on this plan. She doesn't know that he's going to be oblivious in the way that she presented it. She doesn't know those things. She doesn't know what is going to happen. She risks everything. To go and identify with the people that the king had endorsed killing. It took courage. To identify in this way with the Jewish people, it took courage. And so I want to ask you, as we consider our own hearts and our own lives, as you consider your life right now, what risks are you taking for the sake of the gospel? Sincerely, we we live in a a place where taking risks for the gospel is is far different than taking risks for the gospel in another country. But what risks are you taking for the sake of the gospel? What, What actions are you taking because Jesus is your king and your greatest treasure? What actions are you taking? Not just that, but considering Esther, what risks are you taking because you identify with Jesus? As you consider what's happening in Esther chapter 7, are there injustices in your town or in your neighborhood or your workplace or home about which you remain silent? Who in your sphere of influence has no clue that you identify with Jesus? And then lastly, is there anyone from whom we are hiding our identity intentionally? That we are intentionally hiding the fact that we identify with Christ? You wonder how long Esther and Mordecai had hidden their identity, for their lives spent there. Consider those things and then consider the gospel that we see in Esther chapter 7. I love this, by the way. I love when we can see gospel implications in stories that are not necessarily intended primarily as gospel stories. How do we see the gospel here? Where do we see it in Esther 7? I want to talk about this as a sort of narrative from Esther 7 to the gospel and how we see glimpses throughout it. So consider these things. First of all, Esther identifies herself with the plight of her people. Specifically, she identifies herself with those who were destined to die by the edict of the king. That's a beautiful reminder of the gospel. We are all destined to die. The wages of sin is death. And that doesn't just mean going to the grave. It means eternal separation from God. But knowing our plight... Knowing that that is true, Jesus identifies himself with not just us, but with our plight. He comes to this earth and lives in the midst of the sin that so easily entangles us, and he does this without a single failure. He identifies with us and yet lives a perfect life. But that doesn't end the way that we would anticipate. How we might anticipate his life ending when he lived a life of perfection. Now consider that, as you consider that the final blow of Haman's life comes by way of a false accusation. That's true of Jesus. That's the story of the gospel. Jesus, having identified with our plight, is falsely accused. He never did a single wrong his entire life. He never sinned. He was falsely accused for the sake of us who would be justly and rightly accused because of our sin. And just as Esther identified with and then interceded for her people, identifying with her people who had been sold to destruction and death and annihilation. Jesus, identified with us and having been falsely accused, went to the cross to intercede for us. It's amazing to consider the truth of the gospel. All that Jesus did for us, all that He endured for us, In 7, Haman receives the disgrace that he had designed for Mordecai. He was impaled on the stake he prepared for Mordecai. And Jesus willingly receives the disgrace that was due to me. The disgrace that was due to us all. Jesus takes the separation we designed for ourselves because of our sin. The disgrace that we deserve. And instead of disgrace, we receive honor just like Mordecai did. We receive even more though. We receive the honor that Jesus deserved for the perfect life that He lived. That's that's given to all of us who come to Him in faith. Is the meaning of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is such a beautiful description of what the gospel truly is. It is the Mordecai-Haman story times a million. God does to him what was deserved by us. God made him to be sin, even though he knew no sin. So that in him, God would do to us what Jesus deserved for the life that he lived. In him, we might become the righteousness of God, meaning think. Think about how you live. Think about the thoughts that have distracted you even in a church service. Think about the thoughts that have distracted you every day of your life. And in Christ, God looks at you and says, I choose to treat you as if you lived and thought exactly the way Jesus did his entire life. I credit you with that righteousness. And then lastly, as it relates to the gospel, consider the very end of our text. It says, then the wrath of the king abated. Ahasuerus' wrath was satisfied when Haman was hanged on the stake. Again, we see gospel reflections here. God's wrath, which is right for him to have towards sin. God's wrath was satisfied for us when Jesus was hanged on the cross. His wrath is not satisfied when we die, but when we trust in the one who hanged on the cross for our sake and the the one who died on our behalf. So how should we respond? How should we respond as those who trust in Jesus, those who love Jesus. Again, consider the text. Consider as King Ahasuerus comes back into the room and and what he finds. Haman approached Esther in terror, begging for his life, pleading for his life. That is not the way we have to live. We can approach God with confidence, with hope, with joy, knowing that Jesus has already cared for us and satisfied the wrath of God. When Ahasuerus throws himself on Esther, it says that he already knew that the king had determined evil for him. How far is that from the truth of the gospel for us? That in our waywardness and in our sin, in our falling and in our failing, in our humiliation, we come to a king that we know has determined good And salvation for us. And so we come with hope. And we come with love. And we come with joy. And we come with thankfulness. We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper. And we consider the fact that God knows our absolute worst. And still loves us and has atoned for our sins. We remember that. We remember that truth each and every, every time we take the Lord's Supper together. Paul writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That This bread symbolizes my body that was literally broken for you, in your place, instead of you being broken. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This cup symbolizes the blood that was poured out of me for your sake and for the forgiveness of your sins. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So do it, Jesus is saying, remembering in your minds and in your hearts, remembering the significance of what this represents, Jesus' body and Jesus' blood for you. And as often as you do it, you're reminding one another. You're saying to those that are gathered with you, we are believe. We believe that there is a King who loves us this much and that we can come to Him and we get grace. So as we prepare and you're dismissed and you come and get the bread and you get the cup and you go back to your seats, let's remember with joy. I know I say that a lot, but there is nothing, there is nothing more significant and nothing as joyful as knowing That you are welcomed, that your story is the opposite of Haman's, that you're welcomed by a king who was filled with wrath and now is filled with peace and love for you because of Jesus. There is nothing as joyful as that. And so let's hold the bread and hold the cup as we prepare our hearts to take it together and proclaim together his death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the love that you have for us. Thank you that even in spite of the fact that we're as oblivious as Ahasuerus, so often we are oblivious of your grace. We're oblivious of the way that you love us, oblivious of your mercies moment by moment by moment. You are filled, overflowing with them Still. And that your countenance towards us is dependent on Jesus. And Lord, we praise you for that. We praise you that it is the sacrifice of Jesus that directs your countenance towards us. And that we can have hope and joy knowing that we're forgiven and that we're loved. We praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.